now presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcasts? This is your favorite podcast host, John Gabriel, on your favorite podcast in the world, the king of stuff. A special announcement, by the way. Something that I've noticed is a lot of people consume their interviews on YouTube rather than podcast. And since I doubt there's anything more compelling to see someone like me speaking into a microphone, I thought I might as well put this up on YouTube. I'll try to get it on Rumble later as well. But uh, yeah, it should be listed in the show notes, the actual video. But uh, find me on YouTube. I just put it on my personal account, which basically just has a bunch of ancient music videos that I made. And I thought I should add this interview there. So if you would like to Drink in the visual splendor that is John Gabriel interviewing Spencer Clavin. You now have that option. So I'm just going to see how it goes. See if people like that or watch it or listen to it or whatever. But Spencer Clavin, this is the third time he's been on. He has just released a book. It is out today. We conducted this interview about two weeks ago, I think. And it's called How to Save the West. It's a great book. I got an early copy because I'm pretty I'm kind of a big deal. It's a great read. It's a quick read, too. It's not like eat your vegetables kind of reading. It's just very well done, brisk pace, and it's fantastic. I loved his thoughts in the book as well as in the interview. So after this interview, of course, I will yammer about the news of the week. Catch you on the other side. Returning to our program, I believe this is the trifecta. It is Mr. Spencer Clavin. No relation to Andrew Clavin. I always make that mistake. But he has released a new book, and it is out today, and it is called How to Save the West. Uh, Your humble host has read it. Um, It's excellent. I really enjoyed it. And people might think, oh, this is going to be about the classics. It's kind of, I'm not really into that. I, I don't have a doctorate in the classics. Explain why nobody needs a doctorate to dip into these things. Because as you mentioned in the book, Western literature and the canon, such as it is, it belongs to everybody, and it's a lot of fun to read for the most part. Yeah, you're absolutely right, John, and uh, thanks for uh, having me on. I think the third time is probably the charm, so I'm sure yeah. I'll get it right this time. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, no, you know, I, I think we have really been dispossessed of a great rich inheritance here. That's kind of how I think about it. We've been taught, you know, that the people in the past were all barbarians. They held slaves. They were nasty to women. They did all these bad things that are evil and wrong that we don't like. Or even if, you know, we don't buy into that kind of lefty narrative, we've often just been taught these books aren't for us. They're too big. They're too heavy. They're old and boring and musty. And you probably need a Ph.D to understand them. So that's almost exactly why I wrote this book is because I wanted people to have a way in to understanding that all of those narratives about the great texts of Western civilization, basically all of those narratives are false. They're they're only plausible if you've never cracked the spine of one of these books. Because once you do, you open, let's say, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, you start to realize that what you're dealing with here is the record of hundreds and hundreds of years of people sitting around and asking 
how do I be a good human? How do I be mm-hmm. good at being human being a human being in the universe? What is the universe? What does it require of me? And these are questions that we all ask all the time, whether we know it or not, we might sit around and think, well, how can I be a good friend? Right. Um, you know, how, where's the country going? What's going to happen to America? And we have this assumption, I call it chronological chauvinism, that the mm-hmm. answers which come down to us today now are going to be the latest, the most up to date, the most scientific. And what you find a lot of the times is these questions that have been around forever. Um, the answers that have been around forever are richer, deeper, saner, and in some ways simpler to grasp than a lot of the kind of techno futurism or madcap social justice stuff that's that's out there today. So it's a book for getting people into that tradition. And also we can see modern ideas and there's shockingly a couple of good ones out of the thousands yeah. proposed, yeah. but getting kind of based in ancient wisdom, essentially, any kind of wisdom literature, whatever religion, whatever philosophy, when you're based in that, you can very easily go, well, that's a stupid idea. No, I don't like that. No, I don't want a microchip in my head. Oh, but that other idea, that sounds cool. You know, it it kind of it, it helps you rule in or out different perspectives. Now, the book is kind of framed talking about the five crises facing the West. Why don't you briefly go through those? Sure. Yeah. Um, One of the things that runs through this book actually is about digital technology. You know, we've come up against these incredible new machines and we think, oh, we've never been through these questions before. Um, But as you were indicating, right, there are many instances in which, you know, we've been over this. Like these are kind of profound questions that get raised. I call them crises because they present two sort of fundamentally conflicting ways of looking at the world or choosing between Uh, various options. And the first one is the crisis of reality. It's I put it first because it's kind of the most basic and it's the one that people will recognize we've been dealing with for a a very long time. Um, Basically, is there anything outside of my own personal preferences and desires and and what I happen to think this morning? Is there anything else out there that stays true no matter whether I want it to or not? Even if everybody in the world decides, let's say, that up is down, um, is there something that says, no, actually, you know, up is up and and down is down. Uh, Good is good and evil is evil. You can't just to kill people on mass, these sorts of things. And those questions are newly urgent when you can create a virtual reality machine and basically convince your senses for a moment that something completely different is, is going on and basically remake the world as you as you choose. So I, I start out by making the argument that, you know, thanks to Plato, really, and and, and before him, Socrates, um, we know that there has to be something stable in reality or else everything falls apart. Um, and so from there, we can kind of go on to asking, well, what is that stable universe and how do we live in it? And so this leads me into the crisis of the body, which is the relationship between that mind, which sees the stable and eternal truths. But the, you know, the body that we live in is kind of made of flesh and operates in this very changing and impermanent world. Um, we, we eventually break down and die. And this is coming up now with all these dissatisfactions we're having with not just the way we alter ourselves with digital avatars, but our transgender kind of extreme movement that we've got going on. Um, and so I lay out some of the greatest uh, approaches to thinking about the the body and, and soul and the relationship between them, stuff from St. Thomas Aquinas and, and Aristotle. Um, 
as we go through this, though, there there are these deeper, even deeper questions that start to rise up, namely, you know, what does it all mean? And can we believe that there really is some, you know, absolute truth or divine mind behind mm-hmm. everything? And we might know that we need to feel the need to. Um, but we might also think that, well, science and evolution has kind of just disproven uh, everything. We can account for everything by pure replication. So that's the the third, the middle chapter, the crisis of meaning. Um, well, if we're constantly just, you know, de- evolving and developing, what is it all for? What's the purpose? Um, and and then that kind of goes together with the fourth crisis, the crisis of, of religion. Can we believe in a creative God uh, who, who knows each of us when science seems to be doing so much to kind of exclude that possibility from view? Um, so I once I've argued, you know, that that we can still believe that, in fact, we have to still believe if we want to move forward with all of these great uh, traditions that that we hold dear. Um, I start to then finally look at, OK, the politics, the day to day, you know, what's really going on, because I do believe that America is the the greatest inheritor of these traditions. It's the last best hope of the West. Um, and that, you know, it's not a matter of indifference whether our uh, nation civilization stands or, or falls. So I kind of start to argue that people should invest themselves in their daily communities uh, and and think of themselves really as as personal inheritors of these these traditions which are not you know they're not dependent on the outcome of the next election they're not dependent on muscling the wheel of history backward uh, into some ideal state um, they're dependent on you and me getting up every day and in our heart of hearts taking into uh, ourselves the 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 true the good and the beautiful and striving to live up to them and that's that's kind of where the book leaves off yeah and that's great it's not just uh my preferred thing is just to sit closed up in a room and reading books and trying yeah. to avoid actually getting Tell out in public. It. But right. it, it's kind of like uh, Western civilization has left us a legacy. We've been given Notre Dame and it's our job to build onto that. OK, what's the next thing we can do? How do we uh, keep this structurally sound, which it yeah. isn't really right now, and uh, make it stronger and better for the next generation and pass it on? So it isn't like, oh, we're going back to the old days. No, we are just blessed with this incredible foundation and uh, take advantage of it. And the thing I know we've talked about this before, when I started reading classics, whatever it was like in earnest, maybe five years ago or so. Um, I was just afraid, oh, well, it's eating my vegetables, but smart people talk mm-hmm. about Plato and smart people talk about this and that. So I should probably eat my vegetables and do it. And uh, the first book, fortunately, I picked up was the Anabasis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Xenophon, uh, which is the most fun balls to the wall, crazy adventure story I've ever read in my life. And I'm like, why haven't they made like a hundred movies and a miniseries about this book? And that I was just hooked from then on. And so they're really fun people there. There's a reason they're classics, all the boring lame books. They didn't get copied down century after century (laughs) after century. Uh, The good ones. These are the ones that lasted that are worth reading. So I highly encourage it. Um, One thing that was really good too is A few years ago, I started noticing it was very hard to separate out if I was writing about politics or social issues going on or religion. It's like everything's blended together now. And I Mm. think you presented that very well. And it's not like and that's why you have to go to First Methodist Church in this neighborhood that I go to. It was just like you got to really consider these big issues because 
a lot of the Western canon, that's what it's about. And a lot of them, well, most of them disagreed with each other. And that's what makes it interesting. It just kind of opens your mind and say, well, what do you think about it? And I, I just think it's done very deftly and honestly and openly. And it was just refreshing to see. Oh, well, thank you. I'm 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 touched. And yeah, that is something I say throughout the book, you know, people, you and me and, you know, even people that don't like, you know, write and watch the news for a living, <laughs> we wake up and uh, there are these stories in the news every day that seem to just threaten like total catastrophe, mm-hmm. whether it's the country's falling apart or, you know, the kids are going insane or like, you know, everybody's addicted to video games and civilization is just going to crumble at our feet. And so the reason the book is called How to Save the West is because I think people have a real fear and the real sense of paralysis. How do I do anything about this? I'm just one guy or gal. I'm here out in this world with, you know, giant questions uh, that are are bigger than me. And I think that what happens when we ask those questions is we think of ourselves as if we were like Ron DeSantis. So we're asking the question like, what law will I write tomorrow that will fix everything? Or how will I govern the state, you know, or the country? And that's why paralysis sits in, because you ain't Ron DeSantis. You and I are not these you know, in these positions of power, most of us, we have the vote, thank God. But, you know, th- there's got to be more than than just that. And so people start to feel like, well, I, I have to fix everything to fix anything. Um, and, and the point of the West as a tradition, actually, is that because it is so concerned with the vitalization of the human heart. It's concerned with what you believe personally and how you're going to go out and show up in your community, show up for your kids. Um, you don't actually have to be Ron DeSantis to fix everything. Um, and you, as I say repeatedly in the book, yeah, you don't have to join the church that I wish you would join. You don't have to, you know, sign up for the Nicene Creed hook, line and sinker overnight. Um, but you do have to ask yourself uh, how these big questions might affect you personally personally, in the day to day, in the here and now. That's what the book's about. And uh, on the corollary to that as well is you have a lot of people who are like, this world is insane. Um, I'm going to get through it by reading my Bible and going to church, not reading all these old dead Greek dudes. Um, Oh, sure. You know, gosh, they were pagans for crying out loud if they believed in God at, at all. What would you say to a believer? It's like, no, you really need to read these guys. And here's why. Well, first of all, you're in very good company if that's how you feel. I mean, it's not like you're the first person to whom that has that notion has occurred. And it uh-huh. is a legitimate reaction if you believe, uh, as indeed I do, that scripture, the uh, Hebrew Bible and the Gospels in the New Testament contains the totality of God's truth, you know, at least implicitly in its, uh, you know, if you unpack it. Um, if you believe that, then it, you might well ask, well, what am I supposed to, why should I deal with these pagans and people like Aristotle and, and Plato who were born into error, you know, conceived like all humanity in sin and you just believed in multiple gods and all this stuff. And one of the things that the church has discovered, you know, so within the Christian tradition, there are resources for answering this question. You know, one of the things that people like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas uh, have revealed through their wrestling with with pagan philosophy and and ancient texts um, is that there's such a thing as what Christians call general revelation. You know, it's true, of course, that scripture uh, Christians believe has special revelation stuff you couldn't just figure out by intuiting. 
intuiting things and looking at the world. Um, but God also endowed man with a logos, which is a, like a little picture of himself inside of us, right? If he is the great order that pervades and dominates all of creation, then in mankind, there is this microcosm, this this mind that is able to do this amazing thing where you can like, you know, look at a planet moving across the sky and make a few calculations, perform some observations and predict where it's going to be. And then it's there, right? I mean, these are these are miraculous faculties that we that we have and the Greeks basically grasped the uh, the the fullness of what that faculty can do. And so, you know, one thing you might say is, well, the uh, Aquinas or Augustine, excuse me, kind of puts it in terms of the book of scripture and the book of nature. You know, you have these Mm -hmm. things in scripture that uh, that only scripture can teach. But there is another book that is always in harmony with and in conversation with that book of scripture and it's God's whole creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. So people who study the heavens, who think deeply about, uh, you know, human, humankind and, and natural philosophy uh, are bound to have some information for you that you can that can flesh out your your picture of the world. That's, you know, why Aquinas calls Aristotle the philosopher. He's like the guy who has what, you know, what you need essentially to understand God's creation in such a way as to kind of harmonize it with what you've been taught in scripture. And that book of nature is something by your recommendation. I had never heard of the dude, Thomas Traherne. Oh yeah. (laughs) I read him and yeah, he talks about just, you know, being ecstatic over nature and just like, this is amazing. Isn't God awesome? He wrote it more eloquently than even I just stated it. However, um, yeah, (laughs) it's just that thing. Right. And I think growing up in the Western States, you know, going camping with my dad and being up in the mountains and seeing the trees and the desert below, um, it was just like, oh, this world is pretty darn awesome. It's pretty amazing. And it kind of guides people towards the truth in just following a different path. I, I know, um, I believe I might get the details wrong. St. Basil, Basil the Great, a uh, saint, I think he's in the West and the East, around the year 400. He kept being asked because he was classically trained in a Greek school in Athens, and uh, which was not terribly uh, Christian. And people were asked, well, why should we read these filthy pagan authors? And he said, it's just like the Jews looting the Egyptians. They took all their stuff with them um, into the wilderness and eventually into um, Israel. It's like, we can use all this stuff. Um, God gave them some insight and we can use this. Obviously, it's not going to supersede God or scripture or anything. But um, at their best, a lot of these guys were all groping towards the same thing. There's a reason the Magi came from the East to worship Christ. It was their limited knowledge of stars. They knew kind of sort of about it. And they went, oh, OK, this is way bigger than just following star charts. Yep, that's absolutely right. I mean, the late uh, great Pope Benedict has mm-hmm. in his book on Jesus of Nazareth, it's a three part description of the life of Jesus. And the first one, the nativity stories, he talks about the Magi who, you know, we think maybe come from uh, somewhere in the kind of Persian tradition, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. you know, inheriting uh, knowledge from the Babylonians, the Chaldean astronomers. Right. Um, and he compares them with with Herod and with the other pagans who didn't, you know, come to, I mean, Herod wasn't a pagan, but with the pagans besides the Magi who who came to uh, reject Christ. 
Christ. And he says what this shows about natural science even and the just wealth of knowledge that man is able to acquire for himself um, is that the same knowledge can lead you to glory or to perdition depending on the uh, approach you take to it. The Magi mm-hmm. had the humility, right, to see, to read into the motions of the heavens some kind of new revelation, something that was coming that was greater than anything they'd seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they accepted that and they took that into their hearts herod saw the exact same thing the thing about <laughs> king herod is he had a different reaction <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i mean even the demons believe and tremble right they, i mean herod mm-hmm. saw uh and believed that this was the you know announcement of the coming of the messiah and his immediate reaction was to snuff it out bring him to me so that i may worship him quote right, unquote, right, right. You know? and this is um you know that's uh kind of in a nutshell i think how we should approach all of our technology today is like, what is this, you know, what attitude am I bringing to this tech that can make it serve me and that I can use to serve something higher than than myself rather than, yeah. you know, how can I use it to my own personal ends? And it's the whole concept of techne, uh, te- technology yeah. dealing with that. And some of it's good. Some of it is not so good. So uh, just learn how to use it and to use it well uh, for improving society, helping your neighbor, celebrating God and all these things. Another thing that's very crucial that you get into. Um, and again, it, it's handled very deftly. So so many books that come out are just kind of these angry harangues and what the hell's going on? Get off my lawn. That's kind of what I'm aiming at. I, I think my yep. first great work is going to be titled Get Off My Lawn. Um, just <laughs> vent all my frustrations out. But I have two daughters. They're both in college. One just started uh, this past year. And uh Dealing with the body problem, that's something I'm very concerned with because I'm a dad. So I obviously I don't understand what it's like to be an adolescent girl, um, even if other people claim to have that experience and make TikTok hmm. videos about it. However, um, just having them deal with the extremes of extreme, quote unquote, filter induced beauty and surgically enhanced beauty. And then on the yeah. other hand. Well, your body doesn't mean anything at all. It, you can just uh, reassemble it anytime in any way that you want. Uh, the new trend is such and such surgery. Let's get that. How do you deal with a body problem? Because I think that's just a really crucial message people are dealing with now. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the first step to compassion on this, and this is kind of how I approach it in the book, the first step to compassion is to understand that people have been wrestling with this problem forever. This is hard. It's hard to be in a body, especially Mm -hmm. in a broken world where death exists, right? I mean, the Christian teaching is that death wasn't supposed to exist. And that helps us, I think, to face up to the sorrow of it. You know, we are obviously more than flesh. There is just Mm -hmm. no getting around that. People have tried and tried, especially over the last hundred years or so, to say, well, it's all just a machine. You're just a chemistry set in a meat sack. This is consciousness is an illusion. But we know it's wrong because it's the realest thing about us. It's the thing we experience Mm -hmm. most directly. And Yuval Noah Harari, the kind of like darling of, of Davos, says in one of his books, you know, Given that everything works by electrical impulses and neurochemical reactions, 
you know, why the hell do we need to have feelings? Why do we need to feel fear? <laughs> it's, it's such a classic they get in the way, question. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. They're just so inconvenient. And it's a classic <laughs> question because it gets everything exactly backwards, right? I mean, the feelings are the whole point, the experience of life, the qualia, as, as philosophers call it, the, you know, the color of red, not just the wavelength of light, but the way that the mm-hmm. sunset looks. This is this is the stuff of life, memory, love, desire, right? Um, and so the question is not why the hell do we need any of that stuff? The question is, since we have all of that stuff and since mm-hmm. it is obviously taking place at a realm that is higher than the flesh, why the hell do we need to have a body, right? Why is the, yeah. <laughs> why is any of this just gunk attached to us, right? I mean, St. Paul talks about spirits in clay jars, right? Treasure mm-hmm. in clay jars. Right. So it goes right back to the, you know, the Neoplatonist and this desire to, you know, alter the body, to get out of it altogether, to upload your consciousness into the cloud. Um, and I think the the thing we have to realize, uh, the question, the, the diagnostic question that I propose in, in the book is, how's that working out for you? Um, <laughs> yeah. A really, really good question to ask yourself, right? If you have some fantasy. Nietzsche fans should ask themselves that because, yeah, I'm oh, always like, yeah, yeah, how did yeah. that go for him? Totally. I mean, this yeah. is he's somebody that you can be confronted with the evidence of his own life, right? Okay, you're right, supposed to be right. a Superman sitting around pining after this other guy's <laughs> wife. Like, how is this working out yeah. for you? And and similarly, right, this idea that we're going to be perfect if we just get out of our bodies. You look at the current efforts to do that, not just the transgender surgeries and the the pain and the uh, the terrible damage they do to people's bodies and psyches. But, you know, all of this stuff where you graft, you know, new horns onto your head because you identify with a, an Ibex <laughs> right. or like, you know, yeah, um, yeah. It, it's obviously hurting people. And the promise is always, yeah, but if you take it to the extreme, then it'll work, right? If you just mm-hmm. push it all the way to the edge, then it'll be fine. You'll be in a glorious utopia. So I, my proposition is, that's always a dubious offer. Scrap that and recover the sense that Aquinas has, that Aristotle has, that your body is not an accident and it's not actually expendable or disposable. It's not sort of separate from your soul in that way. What it is, is the the language, the medium in which your soul expresses itself. Just like you can't have a circle in the abstract. You have to have a, a wooden circle or a bronze circle. Yeah. You can't have a sculpture in the abstract. Your your soul is, is what matters most about you. Um, but it's not going to exist except in this embodiment, except in this flesh. Um, so, you know, we'll never perfect the flesh, but living in it and through it and and, bo- and investing it with all the significance that we give our souls um, is a sounder way to happiness at the very least than chopping yeah. off your genitalia or whatever else. Right, right. And um, the body isn't everything, but it's also not just this filthy skeleton that we're stuck with until we die. Um, Yeah, it's a wonderful thing and need to have some respect for it. Um, Another great thing, and we touched on this earlier, um, it's great to talk about, okay, what do we actually do about this? Um, As you said, um, I don't think I'm going to reform the uh, syllabus of Harvard over the next year, but I can get off my rear end and help people in my community, maybe volunteer at a local school and the like. Uh, What do you have to say for that? Like things average folks can do in the here and now. Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen lately in politics itself, this amazing renaissance among conservatives, especially if you can call us that people that just want to live in the real world, kind of want Mm -hmm. to preserve the American way of life and carry it forward into the future. Um, We have seen this new flourishing of like grassroots 
activity, the people who take the fight over CRT to their school boards and the COVID resistance stuff, you know, that there there is this new sense that actually we're not going to have some politicians save us. We're not going to fight it all out in a cataclysmic election season. We're going to actually do the work of building our local infrastructures. And so, you know, that's, I think, very much to the good. I, I make that case in in the book. But the other part of this is, you know, you you start to say that and the immediate feeling is like, well, but what if it all falls apart, right? What if the right. big, like, you know, what if the sky comes tumbling down and the American regime, and it's like, you're just, you're just counseling quietism, right? You're just saying yeah. that, you know, you need to kind of wash your hands of it and be at peace with sort of stoic removal from, mm-hmm. and that's a recipe for failure because you'll never try to, to, right. to save the country, save the world, save the country. Um, and, you know, my suggestion about this is is not that it it doesn't matter what happens to America. Um, my suggestion is that you're only in control of your little patch of of that story. Um, and the great consolation that comes down to us from ancient wisdom on this very topic um, is that even though things do fall apart and even though tragedies do happen in the political uh, universe, the West itself, the traditions that you are fighting for every day when you get up and you go to your school board meeting or you pray with your kids or you, you know, make breakfast for your husband or, or whatever, um, those those things matter eternally because they're part of a tradition that is being carried on from before this country existed and will be carried on and picked up after this country uh, is gone as as it must eventually go. We hope, of course, it won't be in our lifetimes, but all nations fall. That's one of the things that we learn from the Greek historians. Um, and, and, and the point of the West is that you're able, it's able to be rescued from the wreckage. You can pick it up from the flames. You don't know who's going to do that in future generations. I mean, I always use the example of, of Cicero, the great statesman at the end of the Roman Republic, who wrote some of the most powerful philosophical defenses of Republican government, of, of representative mm-hmm. government, and the, the uh, tripartite or the mixed regime. Um, and Cicero failed in the immediate term. Mm-hmm. Cicero was, you know, a, a victim of the new regime, which was imperial and, and autocratic and, um, you know, would have its own kind of struggles and journey, but was not what what he believed to be right. Um, mm-hmm. If you looked at that just in the here and now, just in the kind of momentary scope of things, you would think this guy was a failure. Fast forward to the 1770s and you've got John Adams, you know, uh, who since boyhood has been pouring over the speeches of Cicero, never without his copy. And mm-hmm. he stands up and makes the speech in defense of the Declaration of Independence that that sets this country on its road to existence. And, and I just think, mm-hmm. you know, if, if that can happen, if we can believe that that torch can be passed that many generations down the line, um, then we have no right to despair, which, by the way, is a sin. You know, there is no uh, there is no option of just kind of throwing up your hands. The only option in front of you is to work each day toward the good, the true and the beautiful as it is given to you to see um, and to leave the rest to God. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Um, One thing that I'm very angry at you about is young heretics is slowly working its way to its end and concluding probably by the time this is released, it will be done. But what are your plans for the future? I'm very, uh, very excited about that. Well, once I'm done apologizing sincerely and self-flagellating and, you know, saying my mea culpas to you, John, uh, I am headed over to the Daily Wire, which I'm 
really stoked about as well. People who have watched uh, Young Heretics or listened to it, uh, which was my podcast for several years. Um, it was an introduction to these great texts. I sort of called it the classical education you didn't know you'd been denied. And I was sort of inviting people into this tradition. In, in many ways, you know, this this book is the culmination of a lot of that work and that that effort. Um, and now I'm taking that same project basically to the Daily Wire. It'll go under a different name and it'll take a mm -hmm. slightly different format. Um, but their team has uh, taken me on to just even offer, I think, deeper dives into some mm -hmm. of this stuff because it's so rich. It's so great. Um, we're going to put out four kind of big drops, big seasons of the show uh, a year. Uh, and the first of those will be filming in March. So it's oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, 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 very, very soon. Book and a new show. Now, what about the response? We're waiting to see the response to this book. I'm sure it'll be just as positive. But what have you heard from people, um, especially people who are just like, look, I don't know about the, all this fancy book learning stuff. I'm a plumber and I work hard and I love my family and yeah. I frankly make better money than uh, people with uh, PhDs. Um, but uh, what has the response been to people who might be encountering classics for the first time through this upcoming show or Young Heretics? Because what you shared about uh, user input has been fantastic. Yeah, you know, this is uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that this was a surprise to me. And the reason I'm ashamed about it is because I'm out here saying and I've said, you know, since I was a you know, since I came of age, that this stuff is for you, that it's good mm -hmm. for you, right? That it's not actually inaccessible, that with a little time and care, uh, you, which is well worth it, um, you can incorporate it into your regular everyday life. And when I started Young Heretics, I thought I'll just kind of, you know, hold this out. If, if you're out there in the world long enough, people say, oh, you should have a podcast. And I, uh, I kept thinking, yeah. like, you know, uh, what am I going to have a podcast about? Like, I already, you know, do all I do my writing and so if I'm going to do a podcast, I'm just going to do what the stuff that I love and probably like five people will listen to it. You know, it's like it'll be Homer and it'll be the greats and the and uh, the Bible and all this stuff. And it was like holding out this little morsel of food in in your hand. And then suddenly people like devour your arm like they just it was right. so gratifying that you had mm -hmm. people. They would message me like, oh, I'm, I'm listening to you on my tractor. Seriously. You know, right. Right. A, a guy comes so up to great. me at the gym. He's a he's a cop. You know, he's listening to me mm -hmm. on his beat. And like this stuff is like that's when I feel like I'm doing what I was put on this earth to, mm -hmm. to do. And, and I think the book is the same way. You know, that book is written in that same spirit of like, no, you actually can grasp this stuff and you can do it. You know, in your spare time, uh, it will enrich your life. It will give, uh, you know, greater purpose and meaning to your life. Um, and, and you can do it from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a great read, everybody. How to Save the West. Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Um, rush out now in a buying frenzy, everybody. We are <laughs> going to break Amazon and uh, your publisher's websites. Um, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it, Spencer. It has been a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Always great to have Spencer on. As I promised, dear listeners, I would never fail you. And uh, I promised that I'd cover a few stories from the news of the week. One thing that uh, sprang to mind, it's not the most important thing, but this morning news broke that Dianne Feinstein, the fossil, I'm sorry, the senator from California who is 89 years old, Democrats have been trying to push her out for a very long time. 
because I don't know if all the reports can be believed because I'm sure a lot of this is motivated by other people in California wanting their chance to grab the brass ring of being in the Senate. It's pretty much a guaranteed Dem pickup. And uh, they've been pushing for her to get out for 10 years now, saying, oh, she's not with it. She's out of it. She's confused. She falls asleep in the meetings. Um, she announced this morning or her office announced that she is going to be retiring. 2024 is the next election. And she says, I will not be up for re-election. She would be 91 in 2024. So we're getting up there. We're getting to uh, Strom Thurmond levels of age. But then a few hours later, reporters asked her about it. And she goes, oh, I haven't made a decision yet. And then one of her staffers says, we put out the statement this morning. She's like, I didn't know you were putting out the statement. So, yeah, maybe this is like a Tom Brady situation and uh, she might be coming back anyway. But um, at time of recording, it's a little bit confused, as is Senator Feinstein. The big news, especially over the weekend, was the UFO invasion of the United States. Um, basically, um, the, the skies above us were a live fire zone uh, for most of the weekend, probably like at least three days in there. Anytime a bird gets tracked by NORAD, they're just sending an F-22 up there and blowing it away with sidewinders. Um, there were three shoot downs. I believe it was three. Maybe it was four. I can't keep track of them all. But they're over very remote areas. Um, the Yukon, uh, which is the far northwestern province of Canada as Corrine Jean-Pierre likes to call that country. Uh, one was north of Alaska in the ocean. Lovely weather up there right now. And the last one was over Lake Huron. Uh, they said, well, it's pretty, you know, pretty rough weather. We haven't really gotten any debris yet. We are trying to get it. We haven't gotten it. We don't know if we will get it. I'm thinking they probably got the debris and it's sitting uh, buried in a massive warehouse, like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one. We'll see. Uh, the problem, the problem now is they pretended like the Chinese spy balloon didn't exist until reporters just filmed it floating over their heads in Billings, Montana. Then it spread like wildfire, and the government finally, a couple of days after that, started commenting on it. Well, we can't shoot it down. It's going to kill a bunch of people in Montana because it's a balloon. I don't know what what that was supposed to mean, but they ended up shooting it down over South Carolina because they didn't want it to spy on the Atlantic Ocean. There's a lot of secret fish activities out there. So now they're in overcorrection mode. Um, now, anytime a blip shows up on the radar, they're just firing 400K thousand dollar rockets at everything that moves up there. They have no idea what they are, but they aren't UFOs even though they're unidentified and they're objects and they're flying, but they are not UFOs. They are insisting it's not an alien invasion. The reason all this crazy rumor mill starts is nobody trusts anything that they say anymore. They lie about everything and they have for, I don't know, at least 20 years, probably longer. But we're kind of uh, the American people have started figuring out that they never get a straight answer. Um, so people are just uh, doubtful of anything they say. I would say Occam's razor. These are probably like weather balloons. NORAD didn't used to be able to pick up stuff. They didn't have things dialed in so closely. And now um, the Pentagon freaked out. They had egg on their face and they're like, well, set your sensitivity meters um, up or down, whatever the case might be. So we can catch these bastards before they come over our country. Now, I think they're probably just overdoing it. Um, we will see what happens. It, it's kind of weird that they're saying we have no idea what these are. 
And so we're shooting them down. It's like, maybe you should figure out what they are first. And, you know, is a Chinese balloon, Russian thingy. We don't know. They don't know. And if they do know, they refuse to tell the American people. A similar development happened with this horrible train disaster. There was a train derailed in a place called East Palestine, Ohio. Now, I've heard people pronounce that differently, like East Palestine or something. I I don't know. I have not been there. But this small community is located about halfway between Youngstown, Ohio and Pittsburgh. So it's like literally in Ohio, but right on the border with Pennsylvania, maybe about 40, 50 miles from Pittsburgh, maybe 20, 30 from Youngstown. And there's a railroad going through there. And also, um, it's pretty near where the Ohio River starts really get going. There was a train derailment, and it had something called vinyl chloride in it. And when first responders got there, they thought, okay, that stuff isn't leaking, but we're afraid it's going to blow up, and that would be kind of an environmental disaster. So, vented it and lit it on fire, which created this massive plume of black smoke. Um, Residents have been asked to evacuate. When reporters have asked about it, several have been arrested. Not many people have been commenting on this. This happened days ago. And uh, people are like, what the heck is going on? You know, obviously, the people closer to the disaster are wondering what's going on and wondering what is up with this media blackout. And then everybody started to get confused. Like, okay, why is nobody commenting on this? This is a pretty big deal. And here's what this stuff is that they released. It's a gas, colorless, uh, very hazardous, though. It's classified as a carcinogen for humans. Um, It's been linked to central nervous system effects, liver damage, a rare form of liver cancer. When vinyl chloride is set ablaze, like the first responders did, it decomposes into hydrogen chloride, which doesn't sound delicious to begin with, and phosgene. I saw phosgene. I was like, oh, I've heard of that. Uh, yeah, they used it for chemical warfare in World War One, especially uh, extremely poisonous. And uh, hydrogen uh, chloride, by the way, the other element of this, irritating, corrosive to any tissue. It, it's really bad. But anyway, people are talking about some lady had chickens at her house. I don't know if she lived on a farm. I think she just lived in a house. It's a fairly rural area. All her chickens are dead. Uh, People's pets are dying. Um, People are complaining about headaches, dizziness, all sorts of things. And just, again, what's really weird, disasters happen. They happen all the time. They've happened all of our lives, all over the world. But just the weird just the lid on this thing by the national press. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of local press on it, but not a whole bunch. And like I said, reporters were getting arrested for reporting on this. So the whole thing is weird. Uh, People started bashing Pete Buttigieg yesterday because he gave a speak and he's telling jokes about Chinese spy balloons. And then he starts complaining that too many white males are involved in construction. And we need to correct that. Never mention the train. Never mention the train derailment. Well, he was just blasted all over Twitter. So late last night, he posted, I continue to be concerned about this train derailment. You've never shown any concern for it. Um, This is kind of your gig. And it seems like there's just transportation disaster after transportation disaster, because Pete Buttigieg thought his whole deal was just he would just keep the seat warm for the next person. Doesn't really need to show up. Yeah, I'll take off three months for paternity leave even though, uh, to say the least, neither he nor his spouse gave birth to said child. 
No, no, I'll just take it. I'm going to go to Spain for a while. He had a vacation in Spain. The guy just hasn't been showing up. He isn't showing up to work. And it's just one thing after another. All these air travel snarls going on, supply chain issues, um, very close to getting train strikes. He's just absent in almost all these things. Or he shows up really late after the parade has already kind of passed on. So Pete Buttigieg, man, he has taken a lot of people off and I'm seeing lots of Dems complain about him. He's just an empty suit. He's a McKinsey consultant. Um, If there is a secretary of PowerPoints, he would be the guy to go to a secretary of Gantt charts. That would be a good role for him. But as he is, he doesn't know what he's doing other than going around complaining about white people stealing construction jobs. Yeah, those are the jobs I thought no one, no white people wanted to do. No Americans wanted to do Uh, complaining about that, calling bridges racist, um, talking about equity in electric vehicles. It's just like, dude, just do your basic job. We would all appreciate that very much. Thank you. Another thing in the news, this was kind of previewed a couple of weeks ago. Nikki Haley is supposed to launch her campaign tomorrow. She released a video ahead of time. Eh, it was kind of GOP guy, somebody running a campaign in 2012. Hopeful, positive, telling her life story. Yeah, it was inoffensive. I, I think that's the big problem with Nikki Haley is she wants everybody to like her. And she's very good at that. So she's talking to a more Trump leaning crowd. She'll lean into working for Trump. If she's talking to someone in D.C., it'll be about how she defeated racism in South Carolina. She's not a bad person. She did great as a governor in South Carolina. But, you know, it's not uh, breaking any new ground, to say the least, her campaign. So that should be launched tomorrow. I'm recording this on Tuesday. Oh, by the way, happy Valentine's Day, or as I like to think of it, Happy Arizona Statehood Day. We became a state in 1912 on Valentine's Day. Very important for you to understand that. Last thing I just wanted to talk about and address just because I wrote about it recently. Well, you might remember if you're a long or longtime listener to this podcast, I was against lockdowns and mask restrictions like uh, you're forced to be vaxxed or you're forced to be masked. It's just I didn't want government involved in it because there's all sorts of effects that will pop up. I'm a big believer in Thomas Sewell's maxim that that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. You have to consider um, when you have two paths in front of you, there's going to be pros, there's going to be cons. And you just have to figure out which is uh, has the most pros and the fewest cons. And that's the one you end up choosing when you just shut down society completely, even for two weeks. A lot of bad things can happen. Um, you can't just. uh Turn you can't uh, there's not an on and off switch into the American economy um, to American public education. It's kind of more of a dimmer switch. Maybe you slow it down a bit, turn it up a bit. But this all or nothing madness that took over uh, by governments responding to covid um, created a lot of problems. Now, I I went back through my archives and in April. um, So what? Less than a month after people started doing lockdowns and things like that. Um, I, I know in the local paper, the Arizona Republic, I was writing about how stupid this is and how bad I wonder of mental health issues, domestic violence going up, addiction problems, people not being able to go to their 12 step groups for alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, canceling cancer screenings, uh, canceling therapy appointments when people need kind of continuing therapy for whatever medical or mental health issue. And I compared it to, um, 
it, it might save lives if nationwide we lowered the speed limit on every road to five miles an hour. That would be much safer. Um, but we accept an increased risk for the benefits of travel. We also need to get places, got to go to work, got to go on trips here and there, got to run to the store. So that's why we don't do that. It's a dimmer switch. It's not all or nothing. Um, and one of the things that I noticed in the first week or two was I had two high school daughters at the time. Now they're both college age and they were stressing with this, just being their entire social life being canceled and uh, transported over to screens, whether it's a Zoom meeting or just doom scrolling on whatever social media messes out there. Uh, to her credit, my older daughter, uh, she um, deleted everything. She deleted. She, I don't think she ever had TikTok and she was never big into social media. But one that she was very involved with was Instagram. And she just said one day, I realized that whenever I'm scrolling through Instagram, I get kind of sad. So I deleted it. So she just closed her accounts and deleted it all, um, which is like, man, good for you and good for you for figuring that out. But we saw all sorts of problems. And now a report has come out from the CDC the uh, lockdown loving CDC, where every 10 years they release um, indications about youth mental health. And in 2011 was the last time figures reported for it. 36% of girls reported a negative mental state. What does that mean? Well, uh, they reported being persistently sad or feeling hopeless. Uh, 36%. That's bad. That's one third of teen females felt this kind of depression type symptoms. As of 2021, it was 57%. Nearly three in five of all teen teen females are feeling persistently sad or hopeless. Uh, this kind of went on with uh, suicidal ideation. 30% said they seriously considered suicide in 2021. That's a jump by about, what, 11 points, 19% in 2011. Now it's 30%, a third, basically, of all teen girls have considered seriously considered suicide. So um, I kind of looked at, okay, what's changed in the past 10 years? Well, Instagram was released in 2010, Snapchat 2011, TikTok 2016. And then beginning in uh, spring of 2020, hey, you're all locked in your homes. All your friends, you can only contact them or make new friends via a screen, whether it's an iPhone screen, a laptop screen, whatever it might be, everything is on a screen. And obviously this was going to have very bad results. Nevertheless, teachers unions scream, uh, kids are resilient. They would go to protest, bringing child sized coffins, accusing people who wanted to reopen the schools of murdering kids and murdering teachers. Um, anyone who argued against any of this, including myself, yeah, well, you're a grandma killer. You want, Mass death. That's what you're hoping for. Um, that was all projection, folks. What many of us predicted, including I'm sure many people listening, knew there would be very bad results from this. And now, you know, chickens are coming home to roost here. But teen girls are in a very bad environment. A few people I wrote about it, a few people are like, well, how can you say it's only social media or only lockdowns? Well, it isn't only either of those things. Um, add in everything else, breakdown of families. Terrible messages in all media, media and news saying the world's about to end 24 seven. They've been doing that for the past 10 plus years. Um, environmental damage. We're all going to die. Everybody be in a state of panic all the time. They never want to report good news. It's always dire. Trump is Hitler. They're already gearing up to Santa's is Hitler. Everything is terrible. If you're white, you should feel bad. If you're black, you should feel bad if you 
don't vote for the Democrat, you know, just constantly just bashing people with this stuff. And then you have the insane gender ideology, which is spread like a contagion. It's just a mess out there. Um, People not hanging out with their families as much, not going to church, all these different things. They all combine. Uh, I just looked at the big obvious things like social media and the lockdown. So uh, good job, CDC. Good job, Teachers Union. And good job, all the doom laden um, media. You're not helping people. You're making life worse for a whole bunch of people. And uh, hopefully we can correct this. Of course, the teachers unions, they now want more money to fix the kids that they harmed. No, Uh, it's a little too late for that, folks. And that's why states around the country, Arizona was first, but now it's getting passed all over the place. Education savings account where basically the money given for education, K through 12 education follows the student not the school district, not the teachers associations. No, it follows the students. And if a parent is tired of the nonsense going on at their particular school, whether it's closures, uh, kids not being taught to read or do arithmetic, um, they could just take them out, take them to a charter school, take them to a private school, do homeschooling. Uh, there's pod learning. There's all sorts of things that they can do. And um, this is a result of teachers unions at all overplaying their hand. It couldn't happen a moment sooner, and uh, I don't know, hopefully the next time they release these numbers, they'll be improved. We will see about that, the last item, and it kind of doubles as the song of the day. There's a guy, there was a great band called De La Soul, early 90s, and a lot of rap in, let's say, five years earlier were kind of fun, silly, Bismarcky, Run DMC, that kind of stuff. Then it started to get into more political commentary like Public Enemy. You would have the gangster rap coming out, NWA and that kind of stuff. But there was this cool uh, trio out of Amityville, Long Island, New York. Um, They didn't grow up up in the inner cities. And they just kind of had this chill, laid back, soulful field. And they were called De La Soul. Well, uh, one of the three members of that, uh, they had just been uh, promoting doing stuff um, in the near future here, um, his the name that he went by was Plug Two, um, but he passed away. Heart, he's had heart issues for many years. He was like 52, I think they said, uh, but he finally passed away to that. So um, they almost have none of their music, which is weird on Spotify. So I just uh, pulled this clip out of my personal collection and uh, linked to the YouTube video of it. It's called a roller skating jam named Saturdays. R.I.P. Plug 2. Uh, thanks all for listening. Thanks to Spencer Clavin. Again, you can check this out on YouTube. Remember to rate, rank, subscribe, give thumbs up, pass around to friends, gather the family around the Victrola to listen to this podcast, and I'll talk to you next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.